0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give.
1: Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In this episode, we're talking about the World War II Nazi Hess conspiracies. My preliminary bottom line is that Rudolf Hex acted on his own initiative it's quite surprising but the evidence suggests that hitler did not send him to scotland and the british did not know he was coming hess was a weird guy and he was convinced that supernatural powers were urging him to make the trip i also conclude that the evidence points to him proposing a peace plan that essentially maintained the status quo Germany would get what it wanted in Europe, and Britain would basically get to keep its naval empire. But we still need to discuss whether the man who flew to Scotland was Rudolf Hess at all, or whether he was replaced with an imposter. And whoever it was in housed in Spandau prison, did he commit suicide in 1987, or was he murdered? And if so, who did it and why. Thus, next time, we'll be doing both an identity theft investigation and a murder investigation. It should be fun.
0: You're listening to episode 250 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the possible murder of the former number two Nazi official, Rudolf Hess. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken.
1: Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In
0: 1941, a man claiming to be the deputy Führer of Nazi Germany, Rudolf Hess, made a startling flight to Scotland. When he got there, he said he had a peace plan that would end the war between Britain and Germany. Something that would have changed the course of World War II and thus world history. But the British didn't accept his plan. Instead, they kept him in confinement. And after the war, he was sentenced to life imprisonment in Germany's Spandau Prison. He died, still in prison, in 1987, apparently from suicide. But mysteries still surround him. Did he really commit suicide? Was he murdered? Who would have done it? Why? And was it even Rudolf Hess at all in prison, or was it an imposter? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, how do you want to get into today's part of the mystery?
1: I want to set the stage for our discussion by talking about what happened to the man said to be Rudolf Hess while he was in Spandau prison. Uh, We'll talk about the events that led up to his death, and then we'll talk about the death itself and what the official story was, and then get into the conspiracy theories that have been alleged. Rudolf Hess was sentenced to
0: prison at the
1: Nuremberg trials following World War II.
0: Multiple Nazi leaders were executed, but Hess's crimes were judged to warrant life imprisonment. He was then housed in Spandau prison in West Berlin, but he wasn't the only prisoner housed there, correct?
1: That's right. Um, Originally, there were six other Nazis uh, sentenced to Spandau. And by the way, I told people it's Spandau in German, Spandau in English. You'll probably hear it both ways on the show. Uh, But Rudolf Hess was prisoner number seven. Over time, though, things changed. In the 1950s, four of the prisoners were released. Constantine von Neurath uh, had only been sentenced to 15 years in the prison, and he was released early in 1954 because he had a heart attack and was in ill health. Erich Rader uh, had gotten a life sentence, but he was released in 1955 also because of ill health. Karl Dennitz uh, had a 10-year sentence, and he was released in 1956 at the end of his sentence, and Walter uh, Funk. Another lifer uh, was released in 1957, again because of ill health, and he died of complications from diabetes a few years later. That left Rudolf Hess and two others in the prison, but the other two were released in 1966. Albert Speer uh, had been sentenced to 20 years in the prison, and his sentence was up in 1966. The same was true of Baldur von Schirach, so he also got out in 66, and that left Spandau 7, Rudolf Hess, the only prisoner in a facility built to hold 600. Uh, he remained in Spandau for 21 years until his death in 1987. The U.S. prison commandant, Lieutenant Colonel Jean, uh, Eugene Bird, uh, befriended Hess and later wrote a book about him called The Loneliest Man in the World.
0: Was there any controversy about paying to keep a whole prison running just to house one prisoner? That must have been a burden on the German taxpayers, and Hess was an old man by now.
1: Yes, there was some controversy. Uh, When the other prisoners were released in 1966, Hess was 72 years old. That was considered quite old by the standards of the day, though not so much anymore. And it cost West German taxpayers about 800,000 Deutschmarks each year to keep the prison running just for him. That would be about 2 million Deutschmarks today after the relatively low inflation that the German government has caused, because the German government is far less reckless than the U.S. government is with inflation due to their horrific experience with the Weimar hyperinflation that we discussed in episode 199. Put in American terms, it was costing the German taxpayers about $2 million a year to keep him in prison back then, and that translates into almost $10 million a year today because of the much higher rate of inflation that the U.S. government causes. So, yes, there uh, was a question of whether it was really worth it To spend that much money keeping one old man in prison, especially when he was old and only getting older. Then why wasn't he released? Some people felt that he was an unrepentant Nazi and deserved to serve his sentence. But others thought that you can't keep someone in jail just because they hold Nazi views. They have to actually be guilty of crimes. And some held that Hess was wrongfully convicted at Nuremberg. For example, his son, Wolf, uh, thought that and publicly argued that his father had been wrongfully convicted. He worked uh, mainly on the civilian side of things and wasn't directly involved in the Nazi war effort. So, you know, Hess uh, wasn't one of the war plotters. He was doing civilian Nazi stuff, and he'd left Germany early in the war, so he couldn't be convicted of war crimes and genocide that were ordered by the Nazi leadership later on. So he'd been found not guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity at Nuremberg. Further, he'd left Germany on a peace mission, and it was a dangerous peace mission, since he could have been shot down by the British and killed before he even landed, which is what they tried to do. In an essay defending his father, which we'll have a link to, uh, Wolf wrote, I will not go into
0: detail here about this shameful victor's trial of the vanquished, except to note that even the tribunal's allied judges had to exonerate my father of the charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity. But they ruled that he, the one man who had risked his life to secure peace, was guilty of crimes against peace. And on that basis, sends him to life imprisonment. The court's treatment of Hess is alone more than enough to dismiss the Nuremberg Tribunal as a vengeful victor's kangaroo court that merely pretended to be a genuine forum of justice.
1: Others, while not going that far, also felt that Hess should be shown mercy. In fact, in 1950, Winston Churchill even argued uh, that Hess should be let go partly because of his frantic peace mission and partly on psychological grounds. Churchill wrote, Reflecting
0: upon the whole of the story, I'm glad not to be responsible for the way in which Hess has been and is being treated. Whatever may be the moral guilt of a German who stood near to Hitler, Hess had, in my view, atoned for this by his completely devoted and frantic deed of lunatic benevolence that is his peace mission. He came to us of his own free will and, though without authority, had something of the quality of an envoy. He was a medical and not a criminal case and should be
1: so regarded. Hess's attorney at Nuremberg, Dr. um, Alfred Seidel, started appealing for his release in 1947, but the appeals were denied. In 1967, the first year that Hess was alone in Spandau, His son began to campaign for his father's release, and he got support from important people like Jeffrey Lawrence, the main judge at the Nuremberg trials, the main British judge, and Willy Brandt, the uh, Chancellor of West Germany. Wolf Hess also uh, started a petition to get his father released, and by 1974, it had 350,000 signatures. But these efforts did not bear fruit. Wikipedia explains. Goda states that Wolf Hess's efforts to free his father
0: ultimately backfired as he conflated the question of whether his father deserved release on humanitarian grounds with the question of whether his father was guilty. Wolf argued that his father was unjustly imprisoned to hide the UK's war guilt, arguing that millions of lives could have been saved if only Churchill had accepted Hess's
1: peace offer in May 1941. Rudolf Hess also kind of sabotaged the efforts to get him free. You see, in uh, his 70s, he wouldn't have been much of a physical threat to society, but he could still be an ideological threat. There was concern that if he got out of prison, he might start making public statements and stirring up pro-Nazi people in Germany. Even though the Nazi party was now outlawed, neo-Nazism was still a problem in Germany, and there are still some neo-Nazis in Germany today. And there were a lot more back in 1966, just 20 years after the war. So people didn't want him getting out of prison and becoming a leader of the neo-Nazi movement. Hess countered this concern by promising that he wouldn't make public statements upon his release. And yet he secretly and repeatedly drafted public statements that he planned to make upon his release. In 1986, a Soviet guard caught the Protestant chaplain of Spandau, Pastor Charles Gable, uh, trying to smuggle out a 17-page statement by Hess, which led to the chaplain being fired. Uh, I have to say, I think that's hilarious. Hess saying, oh no, I won't make any public statements after my release, when he's already drafting them and trying to get them smuggled out.
0: Who was saying no to the request for Hess to be released?
1: Well, that's the thing. Uh, after World War II, there were four Allied powers in control of Germany America, Britain, France, and the Soviet Union. And they divided the nation up into four zones, each one under the control of one of the four powers. They also did the same thing for the capital, Berlin, which they split into four Allied zones. As the post war rebuilding of Germany proceeded, uh, three of the zones the American, British, and French merged and they became the state known as West Germany. But the Cold War was now heating up and the Soviet Union used its influence to keep their sector separate, so it became a second nation known as East Germany. Even the capital Berlin remained divided, and the former capital, and the Soviets built a wall through it known as the Berlin Wall, which separated West Berlin from East Berlin. The position of West Berlin was precarious because Berlin is actually located in what was East Germany, and West Berlin was only linked to West Germany by narrow highway and railway connections. In the Cold War, there was a lot of concern that one of the Soviets' first moves in World War III would be invading West Berlin and then West Germany, and the Berlin Wall was a focus of attention. It was there to keep people from escaping the harsh conditions in East Germany and coming to the West. And people could be killed for trying to get over the Berlin Wall. This was the era that I was born in. So I had grown up my whole life without there being a unified Germany. It was always West Germany and East Germany and all of the associated Cold War tensions. Berlin and the Berlin Wall played a prominent role in our near-miss with nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we talked about in Episode 213, and also in Episode 214, and then the secret Cuban Missile Crisis in Episode 228. We also came close to nuclear war in the 1980s, as we talked about in Episode 64 and 65 on The Third Secret of Fatima, and as we'll talk about in future episodes. But eventually, a new Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, came to power and began a reform program in the Soviet Union. He also tried to dial back the Cold War tensions with the West. And in 1987, U.S. President Ronald Reagan went to the Brandenburg Gate in West Berlin and made a famous speech. You can hear how enthusiastically the crowd of West Berliners react. He said, General Secretary Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Well, that didn't happen immediately. But because of Gorbachev's reform efforts, things started loosening up in the Soviet Empire, and East Germany decided to draft a new policy allowing greater travel between East and West Germany. They held a press conference to announce the new, less restrictive policy. But the guy running the press conference hadn't been fully briefed, and he was asked questions about the new policy that he didn't have the answers to. So he started improvising, and the press conference went sideways. As a result, the Western press, which was being heard by Germans on both sides of the border, started to report that the East German government had decided to open the border to everyone and that the gates at the Berlin Wall were open wide. This caused a huge crowd of more than 70,000 people to gather at the wall and exercise what they thought was their new freedom to cross at will. The German guards were taken off guard by this and didn't know what to do. None of their superiors were willing to take responsibility for using lethal force to stop the people from crossing. The East German guards were vastly outnumbered by the crowds. And so, the Berlin Wall disintegrated. People started crossing at will. People climbed up on the wall and started dancing and partying. And since Mr. Gorbachev hadn't done it yet, people started tearing down the wall on their own initiative. Wikipedia explains, Mary Elise
0: Surratt, in a 2009 Washington Post story, characterized the series of events leading to the fall of the wall as an accident, saying, one of the most momentous events of the past century was in fact an accident, a semi-comical and bureaucratic mistake that owes as much to the Western media as to the tides of history. Finally, at 10:45 p.m. on 9 November, Harold Jaeger, commander of the Bornholmer Straße border crossing, yielded, allowing guards to open the checkpoints and letting people through with little or no identity checking. As the East Germans swarmed through, they were greeted by West Germans waiting with flowers and champagne amid wild rejoicing. Soon afterward, a crowd of West Berliners jumped on top of the wall and were soon joined by East German youngsters. The evening of 9 November 1989 is known as the night the wall came down. Removal of the wall began on the evening of 9 November 1989 and continued over the following days and weeks, with people nicknamed Mauerspechte, wallpeckers, using various tools to chip off souvenirs, demolishing lengthy parts in the process in creating several unofficial border crossings. Television coverage of citizens demolishing sections of the wall on 9 November was soon followed by the East German regime announcing 10 new border crossings. Crowds gathered on both sides of the historic crossings, waiting for hours to cheer the bulldozers that tore down portions of the wall to reconnect the divided roads. While the wall officially remained guarded at a decreasing intensity, new border crossings continued for some time. Initially, the East German border troops attempted repairing damage done by the Wallpeckers. Gradually, these attempts ceased and guards became more lax, tolerating the increasing demolitions and
1: unauthorized border crossing through the holes. And I remember all this and how exciting it was. There was a big question of what the Soviet Union would do in response, but Gorbachev allowed the events to play out. Uh, negotiations between the two Germanies and the four Allied powers took place. And a year later, 1990, Germany was reunified and there was a unified Germany for the first time since 1945. This also was one of the key events leading to the collapse of the Soviet Union, which happened the year after that in 1991, which we'll also talk about in a future episode. That was
0: such an amazing time and what a privilege it was To witness it with my own eyes on TV, it it had been so hard to imagine that such a thing could happen. Uh, It's amazing. I get a little emotional remembering it.
1: Yeah, it was really amazing. Now, I want to share all this with you because it shows what a time of tension and hope the end of the Cold War was. And it sets the stage for what happened with Rudolf Hess back in Spandau prison in West Berlin.
0: Then let's go back in time a bit and talk about what was happening just before he died.
1: How was the evolving situation with the Soviet Union affecting things? It created new hope because for some time it had been the Soviets who had been blocking his release. The Western powers were actually favorable to his release. The four powers had been operating Spandau on a rotating basis, each one of the four would take uh, control of the prison for a month and then relinquish command to the next in line. So there would be an American month, a British month, a French month, and a Soviet month. Uh, Each nation had control of the prison for three months, uh, separate ones, uh, during the course of the year. And by the 1980s, the Western powers had begun favoring the idea that Hess should be released from prison. But the sticking point was the Soviets, who always refused they were the people saying no to giving Hess his freedom. Lord James Douglas Hamilton explains, There was a widespread feeling in Germany that Hess was being used by the
0: Russians as a pawn in East-West relations, and that they would not release him without major concessions in other fields from the British, Americans, and French stationed in West Berlin. For the last years of Hess's life, the governments of Britain, the USA, and France would have preferred to free Hess, but they were not willing to make an international
1: issue over his release with the Russians. It was suspected, for example, that one of the reasons the Soviets didn't want to release Hess was that as long as he remained in Spandau, which was in West Berlin, they, the Soviets, had a foothold in Western territory. And that foothold would, oh, I don't know, let them get spies into West Germany. There may also have been another reason that they didn't want him out. Nesbitt and Van Acker write, According to the distinguished
0: German historian Werner Maser, Hess was temporarily released from his cell on the night of 1718 March 1952, at a time when the Russians were guarding Spandau. Without the knowledge of the Western powers, he was taken to a secret location where he met senior officials of the German Democratic Republic. On Stalin's instructions, he was offered his freedom and a leading position in that country, providing he declared that it was realizing the socialist ideal to which he had always aspired. However, Hess remained true to his idol Hiller and turned down this offer to the fury of the Russians. They warned him against revealing anything about this outing and declared that he would remain in Spandau until his death. If this episode occurred,
1: the prisoner took the secret to his grave. So maybe the Soviets didn't want Hess released, in part because he might reveal a secret deal that had been offered to him by Stalin. However, by the Gorbachev era of the 1980s, Stalin had fallen out of favor. Uh, So revealing unflattering information about him would not have been as big a deal. Regardless of whether that event happened or not, there was new hope of getting him released. And so in January of 1987, Wolfhess wrote to the Soviet embassy in Bonn, West Germany, and for the first time in 20 years of writing them, he got a reply. They told him to contact the Soviet embassy in East Berlin to discuss his father's situation. He arranged a meeting with Soviet officials at their consulate in the western part of the city on the afternoon of March 31st. And that morning, he was scheduled to have one of his yearly prison visits with his father. It would be the last time he saw him alive. Wolf Hess picks up the story.
0: That morning I visited my father in Spandau prison for the very last time. I found him to be mentally alert, quite up to par, but physically very weak. He could walk only when supporting himself with a cane on one side and with help from a guard on the other. Sitting down with his feet propped on a chair had become a tedious procedure which he could not manage without help. Even though I found the temperature in the visitor's room to be quite normal, he felt cold and asked for his coat and an additional blanket. My father opened our conversation with an interesting piece of news, the details of which he asked me to set down in writing. He had sent a new application to the heads of state of the four occupation powers requesting release from his 46 years imprisonment. I was particularly struck by one point. He told me that he had appealed especially to the Soviet head of state, Mikhail Gorbachev, to support his request with the other three custodial powers. Did I get that right? I asked. My father nodded. So he knew, obviously from the Russians themselves, that they were considering approving his release. This was
1: hopeful news, and the good news kept coming. His meeting with Soviet officials went well, and a couple of weeks later, the German news magazine Der Spiegel, uh, which means The Mirror, published an article titled Will Gorbachev Release Hess? Gorbachev, it went on, took the view that the release of Spandau's last prisoner
0: would be an action that would be accepted worldwide as a gesture of humanity and which could also be justified to the Soviet people. In this regard, the Newsweekly also mentioned the forthcoming visit to Moscow by federal German President Weissacker. Who was planned to take place in mid-May? Also on April 13, 1987, a private German citizen wrote a letter about the Hess case to the German language service of Radio Moscow. The letter of reply, dated June 21, 1987, declared, "As can be hoped from the most recent statements of our head of government Mikhail Gorbachev, your long years of efforts for the release of the war criminal
1: Rudolf Hess will soon be crowned with success." So it looked like Rudolf Hiss might be released very soon. But then, suddenly and without warning, Wolf got a message. On Monday, August 17th, 1987,
0: a journalist informed me in my office that my father was dying. Later, at home, I received a telephone call at 6.35 p.m. from Mr. Darrell W. Keene, the American director of the Spandau prison, who informed me officially that my father had died. The official notification, which was in English, read as follows. I am authorized to inform you that your father expired today at 4.10 p.m. I am not authorized to give you any further details.
1: Wolf and Hess's Nuremberg attorney, Dr. Seidel, immediately flew to West Berlin. But Mr. Keene, the American who was in charge of Spandau since it was an American month, said he couldn't let them in, presumably because investigations into the death were still happening but he, and they didn't want contamination of the crime scene, but he promised to give them an update later in the day. Later that day, he called them and read them the text of a press release that was about to go out. It said, Initial examination indicated that
0: Rudolf Hess attempted to take his own life. In the afternoon of August 17th, 1987, under the customary supervision of a prison guard, Hess went to a summer house in the prison garden where he always used to sit. When the guard looked into the summer house a few minutes later, he discovered Hess with an electric cord around his neck. Attempts were made at resuscitation, and Hess was taken to the British Military Hospital. After further attempts to revive Hess, he was declared dead at 4.10 p.m. The question of whether this suicide attempt was the cause of his death is the object of an investigation, including a thorough autopsy, which is still in progress.
1: Exactly one month later, on September 17th, the four Allies published an official statement summarizing the results of their investigation, and it said, 1.
0: The four powers are now in a position to make the final statement on the death of Rudolf Hess. 2. Investigations have confirmed that on August 17th, Rudolf Hess hanged himself from a window latch and a small summer house in the prison garden using an electric extension cord, which had for some time been kept in the summer house for use in connection with a reading lamp. Attempts were made to revive him, and he was then rushed to the British Military Hospital, where, after further unsuccessful attempts to revive him, he was pronounced dead at 4.10 p.m. 3. A suicide note addressed to Hess's family was found in his pocket. The note was written on the reverse side of a letter from his daughter-in-law Dated July 20, 1987. The senior document examiner from the laboratory of the British government chemist, Mr. Beard, has examined this suicide note and concluded that he can see no reason to doubt that it was written by Rudolf Hess. 4. A full autopsy was performed on Hess's body on August 19 in the British military hospital by Dr. Malcolm Cameron. The autopsy was conducted in the presence of medical representatives of the four powers. The report noted a linear mark on the left side of the neck consistent with a ligature. Dr. Cameron stated that, in his opinion, death resulted from asphyxia caused by compression of the neck due to suspension. 5. The investigations confirmed that the routine followed by staff on the day of Hess's suicide was consistent with normal practice. Hess had tried to cut his wrists with a table knife in 1977. Immediately after this incident, Warders were placed in his room, and he was watched 24 hours a day. This was discontinued after several months as impracticable, unnecessary, and an inappropriate invasion of Hess's
1: privacy. So the conclusion was that Hess had a history of attempting suicide, and he finally achieved it. When he was left alone in the summer house on prison grounds, he wrote a suicide note and then managed to hang himself using the electrical cord of a reading lamp. He didn't manage to kill himself totally immediately. Uh, Hess was only mostly dead, and there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Uh, If he had been all dead, then the only thing to do would be to go through his clothes and look for loose change. But he had so gravely wounded himself that they were unable to revive him even once he was taken to the British Medical Hospital, and so he died. At least, that's the official story. The question is, how much of it is true? And before we get to talking about the true story,
0: we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Zach W., Gyro C., Adam F., Kyle J., and Kevin S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy yakin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willets. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by... Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Before we look at the issue of whether Hess committed suicide, let's consider the other highly explosive charge concerning a Hess conspiracy. Was the man who the British had had in captivity since 1941 actually been
1: Rudolf Hess, or was he an imposter? Why would anybody think he was an imposter? You'll recall that during World War I, Rudolf Hess received a number of injuries in battle. In 1973, while Hess was in Spandau, a British Army surgeon named Hugh Thomas examined him, and he didn't notice the scars from some of these World War I wounds. So in 1979, after he got out of the service, uh, he wrote a book proposing that the man in Spandau uh, prison was an imposter, and that it was the imposter who had flown to Scotland in 1941 and who had been in custody ever since, since he didn't have the wounds that, uh, that Hess should have had from World War One. But Hess is an individual who is
0: known to have existed. Thomas's theory depends on that, since he obviously believed the World War I
1: records of Hess's injuries. So what do you think happened to the real Rudolf Hess? He thought that the real Hess was murdered, though I haven't been able to find out exactly what the motive for the murder was supposed to have been. But the thing that apparently started him thinking this way was the fact that, you know, he didn't notice the bullet wounds on Hess's back and chest. Do you think that's a persuasive argument? No. In the first place, doctors can and do miss things uh, all the time when examining patients. Second, the scars from the injuries that Thomas failed to notice were not big ones. According to the records from 1917, the entry wound on his chest was only the size of a pea in 1917, and the exit wound on his back was only the size of a cherry pit, again in 1917. But small scars like this can fade and shrink over time as your skin changes making them harder to notice. So the fact that Dr. Thomas didn't notice them in an examination doesn't have a huge amount of weight. Is there evidence against his theory? Quite a bit. Uh, Nesbitt and Van Acker write,
0: There is plenty of evidence which verifies that the pilot who flew to Scotland on 10 May 1941 was truly Rudolf Hess. He was positively identified by Sir Ivone Kirkpatrick, the foreign office expert on Germany who knew him well. Moreover, Hess recognized Kirkpatrick. While in Britain, Hess wrote to all his family and friends on numerous occasions, his letters containing personal details which only he could have known. His handwriting was identical with that of his letters written pre-war. Nobody at his trial at Nuremberg had any doubts about his identity, nor did his family during their visits to Spandau prison. Moreover, a study of photographs taken of Hess before and after his flight to Scotland reveals the same physiognomy. Mouth, ears, nose, chin, bushy eyebrows, and staring eyes.
1: Then there's the question of motive. What on earth would be the Nazis' motive for sending a fake Hess to Britain? If the British saw through him and realized he wasn't really Rudolf Hess, that would seriously undermine the peace effort and what on earth would be the motive for the impostor to keep his mouth shut while he was in prison for the rest of his life um the nuremberg court you'll remember had convicted him of things done by the real rudolf hess apparently before he left germany not the stuff he did uh, after the british had him in custody so What would stop the imposter from saying, hey, I'm not him. I'm innocent of these charges, so let me out. After all, the Nazis had been smashed as a result of the war. They weren't in power anymore, and they wouldn't be able to hurt the prisoner. Uh, That means it makes no sense, either from the perspective of the Nazis or from the perspective of the imposter. Oh, and uh, by the way, those wounds that Dr. Thomas failed to notice, well, it turns out they were still there. Nesbit and Van Acker write, The question of these tiny scars was also raised with Hess
0: by a Protestant pastor, Charles Gable, who attended him in Spandau prison. In his book, Gable wrote, I told him what had been written in the newspapers about Thomas's book. Hess laughed heartily and told me that two British doctors, the director of the military hospital and a surgeon had visited him to to have a look at these famous scars, which they found, although they were not very visible.
1: Hess also showed the scars to his wife when she visited him in Spandau. He opened his shirt, pointed to the chest wound, and said, You see, the scar is still there. Don't worry. It has grown smaller, but it is still there. And then, in 2019, we got DNA evidence. How did we get that? Wasn't Hess's body eventually cremated? Yes, but in 1982, uh, while he was undergoing a routine medical examination, a U.S. Army doctor named uh, Philip Pittman took a blood sample. Uh, A pathologist then put some of the blood on a slide for examination under a microscope, and the slide was kept at uh, Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. for teaching purposes. Eventually, they uh, brought the slide out of storage for DNA testing, And they found a living male relative of Hess who was also willing to give them a blood sample, which took some doing because, in part because Hess's family is extremely private, as you might well imagine. And then they ran a test on the DNA of the Y chromosome, which is inherited only through the male line. Comparing Hess's Y chromosome to that of the living relative, New Scientist reports.
0: Statistical analysis of the results suggests a 99.99% likelihood that the blood sample on the slide comes from a close family member of the living relative of Hess, strongly supporting the hypothesis Kemper Keislesch's team report that prisoner Spandau number 7 indeed was Rudolf Hess, the deputy Führer of the Third Reich. Citing the privacy of the Hess family, Kemper Kaislisch declined to comment on their response to the results. We don't know how the Hess family feels about the closure of the final chapter on the story of their infamous relative. The conspiracy theory claiming that prisoner Spandau number seven was an imposter is extremely unlikely and therefore disproved the scientist's right.
1: And given the DNA and all the other evidence we have, I think that this puts the imposter theory to rest. There was no conspiracy to replace Rudolf Hess with an imposter
0: then let's turn to the last and perhaps biggest of the Hess conspiracies. How did Hess die? Did he commit suicide or was he deliberately killed? And if so, why? Who has proposed the murder theory and what evidence have
1: they cited for it? Dr. Hugh Thomas, the same guy who proposed that Hess was replaced with an imposter, also proposed that the imposter was killed in Spandau in 1987. However, his version of the theory is based on the idea that the man in Spandau was an imposter, so maybe you need to eliminate the imposter, Um, and and that's not true, so we won't be devoting time to his theory. Instead, we'll be looking at a case that was put forward by Hess's son, Wolf, who, like other members in the family, were convinced that it was Rudolf Hess in prison. I mean, they knew him. He was their family member but they were concerned that he may have been murdered. What we'll do is present the arguments used by Wolf and then go back through them to see how well they stand up. Perhaps the uh, first and most obvious thing that could suggest murder is the fact that after all these years, it looked like Hess was finally going to be released, and that's something he looked forward to. So why would he kill himself on the eve of freedom? Uh, People tend to kill themselves when they're despairing, but Hess had not only hope, but an expectation of being released. And if he'd lasted in jail for 46 years, you know, without seeing his family and everything, why couldn't he just wait a few more months and then he'd get to be with them? That question goes to what Hess's motive for suicide at this particular
0: time would have been. But we can turn the question of motive around. Whoever killed Hess would need a motive for killing him at this particular time. What do supporters of the murder theory propose
1: that the motive was? It was the fact that he was likely to be released in the near future. As long as he remained in prison, his ability to communicate with outsiders was extremely limited, and somebody was afraid that he would say things on the outside once he was free to give interviews that they didn't want said. We saw earlier that the Soviets might have been embarrassed by what he might be able to say about the offer Stalin allegedly made to him, but uh, Wolf thinks that it was the British and the Americans who would be harmed by potential revelation, so he thinks that the British and Americans were responsible. Why does he think that? Because this is what he was told the day after his father's death. Hess died on Monday, August 17, and on Tuesday, August 18, Wolf spoke with a member of the Israeli intelligence service, the Mossad, from South Africa. He apparently spoke to this person by phone, but in February of the next year, Wolf's wife went to South Africa and brought uh, back the Israeli agent's testimony in the form of of an affidavit, which read as follows. I have been questioned about the details of the death of the former German Reich Minister
0: Rudolf Hess. Reich Minister Rudolf Hess was killed on the orders of the British Home Office. The murder was committed by two members of the British SAS Special Air Service, 22nd SAS Regiment, SAS Depot Bradbury Lines, Hereford, England. The military unit of the SAS is subordinated to the British Home Office, not to the Ministry of Defense. The planning of the murder as well as its direction was carried out by the British Security Service MI5. The Secret Service action, whose aim was the murder of Reich Minister Rudolf Hess, was so hastily planned that it was not even given a code name, which is absolutely not customary. Other secret services which had been privy to the plan were the American, the French, and the Israeli. Neither the Soviet KGB nor the GRU nor the German Secret Services had been informed. The murder of Reich Minister Rudolf Hess had become necessary because the government of the USSR intended to release the prisoner in July 1987 in connection with German President von Weizsacker's forthcoming visit to Moscow. But President von Weizsacker was able to negotiate an extension with the head of the Soviet government, Gorbachev, until November 1987, the next Soviet period in the guard cycle. The two SAS men had been in Spandau prison since the night of Saturday, Sunday, August 15 to 16, 1987. The American CIA gave its consent to the murder on Monday, August 17, 1987. During Reich Minister Rudolf Hess's afternoon walk, the two SAS men lay in waiting for the prisoner in the prison garden, summerhouse and tried to strangle him with a four and a half foot long cable. Afterwards, a suicide by hanging was to be faked. But as Reich Minister Rudolf Hess put up a fight and cried for help, which alerted at least one American guard soldier to the attack, the attempt on the prisoner's life was broken off and an ambulance of the British military hospital was summoned. The unconscious Reich Minister Rudolf Hess was taken to the British hospital
1: in the ambulance. So the day after his father's death, Wolf was being told that it was a hastily planned assassination attempt that was carried out by two British special air servicemen uh, at the orders of the British home office with the consent of the American CIA and with the foreknowledge also of with foreknowledge of the event also on the part of the French and the Israelis. But while the SAS men were trying to kill Hess, he cried out and made enough noise that it attracted attention from an American serviceman, so they aborted the attempt and Hess ended up being taken to the British military hospital where he died as a result of his wounds.
0: That's a pretty dramatic story. Did any further testimony emerge to support it?
1: Yes. One of the people who had been attending Hess in Spandau was a man named Abdallah Malawi. Uh, He was a civilian and a Tunisian citizen, and he worked at Spandau as a medical orderly. He was reportedly very close to Hess and had helped him with his daily activities and after Hess died, he contacted the family and related what he had seen. He also put this in an affidavit, which said,
0: When I arrived at the garden summerhouse, I found the scene looking as though a wrestling match had taken place. The ground was churned up, and the chair on which Hess had usually sat lay on the ground a considerable distance from its usual location. Hess himself lay lifeless on the ground. He reacted to nothing. His respiration, pulse, and heartbeat were no longer measurable. Jordan, an American guard, stood near Hess's feet and was obviously quite beside himself. Wolf continues, Malawi noticed to his surprise that besides Anthony Jordan, the black American guard, two strangers in U.S. military uniform were present. This was unusual since no soldier was normally permitted access to this part of the prison, and above all, because any contact with Rudolf Hess was most strictly forbidden. In Malawi's opinion, the two strangers seemed reserved and calm, in sharp contrast to
1: Jordan. So, this is consistent with what Wolf said he was told the day after the event by the Mossad agent. There were indeed two strange military men there, only they were in American uniforms rather than British uniforms. Uh, presumably, this would be to make them visually fit in, since August was a month where the Americans were in control of the facility, and they seemed calm, which would be what you'd want in a cold-blooded killer. Uh, There also was another American serviceman, now identified as Anthony Jordan, and he looked quite shook up, like he had just urgently run to the summer house, consistent with the Mossad agent's claim that Hess was yelling, and that caused an American guard, who would be Jordan, to uh, come to the house, forcing the other two to break off their attack. The Israeli agent's testimony, which would have been hearsay since he was not there, was now at least partially supported by the testimony of an eyewitness, uh, Malawi, the medical order.
0: Verbal testimony can be helpful, but there can be different interpretations of what people
1: see. Was there physical evidence to back up the verbal testimony? One piece of evidence uh, concerned Hess's physical state. Wolf explains
0: Hess was a frail 93 year old man with no strength left in his hands who could just barely drag himself from his cell into the garden. How was he supposed to have killed himself in this
1: way? So, how was he supposed to get the cord from the reading lamp, tie it around his neck, and then tie it to the window latch? Uh, the argument is that his weak, possibly arthritic hands shouldn't have been able to do this.
0: What about the autopsy that was done on him? It found that there was a mark on the left side of his neck that was consistent with a ligature. Dr. Cameron, the British physician who conducted the autopsy, concluded that Hess died of asphyxia caused by compression of the neck due to suspension or hanging rather than being throttled or strangled with a cord. How did Wolf Hess respond to that?
1: The family was concerned enough about the original autopsy that once the authorities gave them the body back for burial, they immediately had a second autopsy done. Uh, They took the body to the Institute of Forensic Medicine in Munich and had it re-autopsied by a pathologist uh, named Professor Wolfgang Spahn. In the second autopsy report, Dr. Spahn concluded, Dr. Cameron's further conclusion that this
0: compression was caused by suspension is not necessarily compatible with our findings. In forensic medicine, the course which the ligature mark takes on the neck is considered a classic indicator for differentiating between forms of hanging and throttling. If Professor Cameron, in his assessment of the cause of death, comes to the conclusion that the cause of death was asphyxiation caused by compression of the neck due to hanging, he neglects to consider the other method of strangulation that is throttling. Making this distinction would have required an examination of the course of the ligature mark. The precise course of the mark is not given in Professor Cameron's autopsy report. Here, neither the course of the strangulation mark on the neck, as we have described it, nor its course on the throat, nor its position relative to the prominence of the larynx, has been described in assess. Since on the uninjured skin of the neck, where the possibility of distortion through the suture of the dissection incision is ruled out, an almost horizontal course of the strangulation mark could be identified. This finding, as well as the fact that the mark on the throat obviously was not located above the larynx, is more indicative of a case of throttling than of hanging. He further wrote, Under no circumstances can the findings be readily explained by a so-called typical hanging. The burst blood vessels which were observed in the face, caused by blood congestion, are also not compatible with typical hanging.
1: So, Dr. Spahn uh, found that the mark on Hess's neck and the burst blood vessels on his face were not consistent with a typical hanging, and he proposed throttling as the means of strangulation, that is, someone using the lamp cord to choke him.
0: Another piece of physical evidence that the four powers cited in favor of the suicide view was a suicide note that they found in Hess's pocket. What did the note say, and what evidential value does it have?
1: I've seen the note translated in slightly different ways from the German, um, just minor variations in wording, but with the same substance. And in essence, it said, Please would the governors of the prison send this home,
0: written a few minutes before my death. I thank all my loved ones for all that you have done for me. Till Freiburg I was extremely sorry that I had to behave ever since the Nuremberg trials as if I did not know her. There was nothing else I could do, since otherwise all attempts to free me would have been useless. I had looked forward to seeing her again. I have received
1: photographs of her as well as all of you, your eldest one. Freiburg was a nickname that Hess had for his secretary, Hildegard Fath, uh, from before he left Germany in 1941. Back during the Nuremberg trials, Hess had for a time been faking amnesia. He later admitted that he was faking at least some of the amnesia, but he pretended not to know his own secretary, and he felt that this pretense was necessary for the attempts to get him freed, so he apologizes to her for that in the note. He also thanks his family for all they've done for him, which would include the letters and visits that they'd been making to the prison, and all the photographs and home movies that they'd sent him during the visits. As to the evidential value of the letter, it says that it was written just a few minutes before his death, and it was written on the back of a letter that came from his daughter-in-law, Wolf's wife. Uh, This letter was dated July 20th, 1987, and the prison presumably would have records of it being received. In any event, the July 20th date would indicate that it was written between that date, and his death on August 17th, and that would indicate it was a recent note written on a recent letter that Hess was known to have received.
0: On its face, that would suggest that it was a recent suicide note, and that would suggest that Hess's death was a recent suicide, but his son obviously wasn't convinced. Was there something wrong with the note? Was it not written in Hess's handwriting
1: or something? Uh, Wolf didn't challenge the idea that it was written by his father. He says, this letter was handed to the family more than a month
0: after the death. We were told that it had first had to be examined in a British laboratory. It did seem to be my father's handwriting, although considerably distorted, as it was whenever he was suffering as a result of emotional upheaval, health problems, or even medication.
1: So, Wolf uh, accepted that it was written in his father's handwriting, and thus that uh, Rudolf Hess wrote it, but he found it suspicious That the four powers apparently didn't find the note in Hess's pocket for one or two days after his death. That could leave time for the note to have been planted on him. And he found it suspicious that the examination of the note was done by the British lab, since it was the British he primarily suspected for his father's death. He also thought that it was significant that the note wasn't dated, it didn't say. August 17, 1987, at the top.
0: But it was written on the back of a letter Hess had received less than a month earlier, in July 1987. If he agreed that his father wrote it, why wouldn't that show that it was a recently written suicide note?
1: In essence, he thought it was an earlier note, something his father had written, but years earlier, when he was previously in danger of death. Uh, What he thought happened in this case was that the British took a previous note and then transferred it to the back of a recent letter to make it look like it was new. Why would he think that? Because of what the note said. Wolf explains,
0: This note did not reflect the thinking of Rudolf Hess in 1987. Rather, it reflected thoughts of his some 20 years earlier. The content mainly concerns Freiberg, his one-time private secretary, about whom he had been concerned in 1969 when he had a perforated ulcer in the duodenum and was near death. Moreover, it was signed with an expression, your eldest one, that he had not used for about 20 years. There's another clue in the letters text that indicates its date. The phrase, I did get pictures of her, as of you all, would have made sense only during the period before Christmas, 1969 because until that Christmas, he received nothing but photographs of Freiburg and us. As of Christmas 1969, he was visited by members of his family and received more pictures from Freiburg, who was not allowed to visit him since she was not family. Considering the precise way my father expressed himself, this sentence can only have been written before December 24, 1969. Written in August 1987, this sentence makes no sense at all. Wolf thus argues, It can now be concluded that a farewell letter written by my father almost 20 years earlier in expectation of his death, and which was not handed over to the family at that time, was used to produce this 1987 forgery. For this purpose, the text was transformed by some modern means onto the back of a letter my father had received recently from us. The censorship stamp, Allied Prison Spandau, which normally appeared, without exception, on every piece of incoming paper he received for more than 40 years, was conspicuously absent from our letter to him of July 20th, 1987. Finally, the supposed suicide note bore no date, which was contrary to my father's routine practice of always prefacing
1: whatever he wrote with the date. So that's how Wolf explained the apparent suicide note. Did Wolf have other evidence he cited in favor of the murder hypothesis? He also noted that the role taken by British citizens in the events surrounding his father's death was really outsized, uh, despite the fact that it was the Americans who were in charge of Spandau the month his father died. He writes The two men the Tunisian orderly Malawi saw in American
0: uniform, who were most probably Rudolf Hess's murderers, were from a British SAS regiment. The death was established in the British military hospital to where my father was brought. In a British ambulance. The death certificate is signed only by British military personnel. The autopsy was carried out by a British pathologist. The British prison director, Mr. Anthony Letizier, supervised the prompt destruction of all telltale evidence, such as the electric cable, the garden house, and so forth. The officials of the Special Investigation Branch, SIB, that investigated the death were all British citizens and were headed by a British major. The alleged suicide note was supposedly found two days later in the pocket of Hess's jacket by a British officer and was examined by a British laboratory. Mr. Alan Green, the British Director of Public Prosecution, halted an investigation into my father's death begun by Scotland Yard, which had recommended a full-scale murder investigation after officials there had found many inconsistencies.
1: And so, he concludes
0: Rudolf Hess did not commit suicide on August 17, 1987, as the British government claims. The weight of evidence shows instead that British officials acting on high level orders murdered my father. And that's the essence of his case. We've now presented the case that Rudolf Hess was murdered.
1: How would you summarize the case? It seems to me that there are essentially seven arguments to consider. One, it was strange that Hess would kill himself when it looked like he was about to be released. Two, there was an affidavit of the Israeli intelligence agent that fingered the British. Three, there was testimony of the medical orderly uh, who came across the scene. Four, there was Hess's physical health, which made it questionable whether he had the physical wherewithal to hang himself. Five, there was the second autopsy, which suggested that he did not die by hanging, but by throttling. Six, there was the suicide note, uh, whose contents uh, may have indicated an earlier date that it was actually written a long time ago. And seven, there was the involvement of a large number of British officials in the investigation. This sounds like a very
0: compelling case that Rudolf Hess was murdered, but... Now it's time to examine the arguments and see how well they hold up. Let's start at the bottom of the list and work our way backwards. What can we say about the large
1: number of British officials involved? The argument from the number of British people involved is impressive when you first hear about it, but notice how selective it is. It isn't it's focusing only on the British people involved, but this was a situation involving all four of the allied powers, so there were people from all four nations involved. I mean Suppose I took a look at everyone involved and then only considered the Americans on the list. I could make it look like the Americans were responsible. Or if I only considered the French, I could make it look like the French were responsible. Or if I only considered the Soviets, I could make it look like the Soviets were responsible. Wolf Hess begins with the hypothesis that it was principally the British responsible, and then he only highlights the role of British individuals. So, of course, that makes it look like the British had a disproportionate role. What Wolf doesn't do is give us a comprehensive picture of who was involved in all aspects of the investigation and thus allow us to see if one nation was more particularly dominant than another. So, he hasn't established that the British had a disproportionately larger role than others. Even if
0: it did turn out that the British exercised an outsized role, that wouldn't mean they were responsible.
1: No, because it could be due to random chance, or it could be due to the fact that Britain is closer to what happened than America is. And like the Americans, the British happen to speak English. So if, I mean, they kind of invented it. So if the Americans are in charge of Spandau in August of 1987, and they need investigations done, maybe they're going to turn to their British friends who happen to speak English and are closer and ask them to take a larger role in the investigation since the investigation needed to take place in Europe where Hess died, and if you haven't noticed, Britain is much closer to Europe than America is. I thus find the argument from the number of British individuals inconclusive.
0: What about the argument concerning the alleged suicide note? What do you make of that?
1: Wolf argues that it better fits a time in 1969 when Hess had a medical problem and was near death. He states that it was the the note from 19, which he thinks was written in 1969, was never given to the family back then, and that it was then transferred by some unspecified modern means to the back of a recent letter to make it look recent. In terms of the content of the note, uh, Wolf found several things suspicious. One, the note uh, was so concerned with his former secretary. Two, it mentioned him receiving pictures of the former secretary and the family, which is odd because after 1969, he didn't just get pictures of his family, but started receiving visits from them. Three, it was signed, Your Eldest, since his father, and that was suspicious since his father no longer used that expression. Four, it was not dated, and his father dated everything. And five, it was missing the stamp that would normally be put on incoming pieces of prison mail.
0: What about the strangeness that the note mentioned the secretary
1: so much? Well, it's a very short note, and it it really doesn't mention the secretary a huge amount. I mean, just a few words, really. Um, But I'll acknowledge that it's a little strange. Uh, a suicide note like this would focus so much on his former secretary. But even if it was written in 1969, that would mean that his secretary was still very much on his mind after 23 years in prison. And he never got to see or correspond with her since she wasn't family. So he hadn't had contact with her in all the ensuing years. And that's something that he would still have regrets about 18 years later when he died. Either way, the issue of his former secretary would still be an act of regret of his at the time of his death, and as you're getting ready to die, you're likely to think about long-standing regrets, and this would definitely qualify. So I don't think that it's unlikely he would have decided to write about this particular regret, which he had been holding on to for decades.
0: What about the fact that the note mentions getting photographs of her and the family and doesn't mention that he also received visits from family members after 1969?
1: It's true that he received only photographs before 1969 because he wouldn't let anybody visit him. Um, But it's also true that he continued to receive photographs after 1969. In context, what he's saying is that Um, he had looked forward to seeing his secretary again, but that never happened. But he did at least get to see photos of her. And then he adds the short phrase, and all of you as well, or as well as all of you. That's just a phrase to acknowledge. The family's photographs also, which also included photos of his grandchildren who never got to visit him. And he wants them to know that he got to see them as well. He doesn't stop and say, oh, and I also got visits from the few family members who were allowed to see me. Uh, Wolf's argument is thus based on silence, on what he didn't say, and arguments from silence are notoriously weak. I think it's quite possible that if he saw his opportunity to kill himself and was hurriedly writing a note, he might fail to mention the visits.
0: What about the fact the note was signed your eldest one, and he hadn't signed himself that way in a long time?
1: It's interesting, but he had signed himself that way before. And as you're preparing to die, you think back over your life, and you might decide to revive an old way of signing yourself, perhaps for old time's sake or as a sign of family intimacy. You might especially do that uh, at age 93 when you are clearly the eldest one in your family. So I think it's interesting, but inconclusive. How about the fact the note wasn't dated and he normally dated everything he wrote? If he seized an unexpected opportunity to kill himself um, and was hurriedly writing a note before his attendant came back, he might not put a date on the note. Also, he did put a time marker in it, the equivalent of a date. Right up at the top, it says that it was written a few minutes before his death. And since the family would know the date of his death, that was the equivalent of a date notation.
0: How about the fact that the letter, uh, the note was written on didn't have the prison receiving stamp? I don't
1: think that's particularly significant because either way you look at it, it's a screw up. Um, If the uh, prison, if the letter is was received and processed normally they should have stamped it and if it was intercepted and never delivered to hass and diverted to um to someone else then they failed to stamp it so either way you go somebody screwed up here um so i would say well in the first place bureaucracies including prison bureaucracies set up to guard just one guy can get lazy and make mistakes, and and that's the obvious explanation. Uh, When the letter came in, they just failed to stamp it. Further, what what scenario are we supposed to envision that would explain the absence of the date? Uh, The letter was written on July 20th from inside of Germany, as I understand it, and it would have arrived at the prison within a few days. Either It got to the prison and the intelligence agency had a mole inside the receiving office, in which case the mole who intercepted the letter should have stamped it as normal so that it would look normal. Or it was intercepted before it got to the mail receiving office. Uh, That would explain the lack of the stamp, but it would mean that it was intercepted basically a month before Hess was executed and that conflicts with what the Mossad agent said which was that the operation to kill Hess was so hastily put together that it didn't it didn't even have a code name so why were they intercepting and stealing letters to use for a suicide note a month before they were going to try um the simpler solution is just that It was a lazy garden variety bureaucratic mistake. Some kind of mistake had to happen no matter what way you go.
0: It sounds like you find the points Wolf raised about the note inconclusive. Do you see any reasons to reject his theory that it was written in 1969?
1: If it was written in 1969, why didn't they deliver it to his family back then? Now, it could be because it was a farewell note. And since Hess didn't die in that year, the note was never sent. But in that case, Why did the prison authorities keep it? I mean, perhaps it would be because they kept copies of everything they had on Hess. But then that would require someone, 18 years later, to both remember that they had this letter on file, this note from Hess on file, and remember that it could be passed off as a suicide note in 1987. And they would have to realize this, find the note, and then transfer it to the back of a recent letter during an operation that was so hastily planned it didn't even get a code name. And that seems quite improbable. I'd also like to know what the transfer method was. I mean, you can propose magical, perfect image transfer methods, but I'd like to know what the method was and see evidence that it existed in 1987. Uh, presumably the process would have been something mechanical, but they gave the letter to the family and even a casual visual inspection would reveal if it just involved some kind of ink or graphite transfer, you know, like photocopying or something. There wouldn't be indentations in the paper from the pen or pencil that Hess used.
0: What if the transfer method involved using a pen or pencil to create indentations on the paper?
1: In that case, you would actually be putting pen to paper, so why not just use a forger? Intelligence agencies have lots of skilled forgers, and the penmanship doesn't have to be perfect. Wolf acknowledged that the penmanship wasn't perfect. It was distorted, either due to the effects of age or anxiety on his father's writing style. And rather than use some special image transfer method, just have a forger do a quick suicide note. That would be easy. And much more in keeping with a hastily planned operation. Finally, if the note was written in 1969, why does it say it was written a few minutes before my death? In 1969, Hess had a perforated ulcer in his duodenum, and maybe that put him in danger of death, but how was he able to predict That his death would happen within a few minutes, and yet he pulled through. That's not the way end of life situations usually play out. I mean, you may foresee that you'll die within a few days or maybe hours, but if you know you're going to die within minutes, you're so far gone that you won't be able to write a letter at that point. Um, The idea that he believed his death would occur within minutes, and yet he was able to write a letter is much more suggestive of a suicide death than a death due to a medical condition. Because in a suicide case, you're planning on killing yourself in a few minutes, that's how you know about the few minutes part, but you're not incapacitated yet, so you can still write the letter. The idea that he believed his death would occur within minutes, and yet he was able to write a letter is thus much more suggestive of suicide. So I don't think the arguments about the suicide note provide significant support for Wolf's case.
0: Then let's look at the results of the second autopsy that the Hess family had performed. The doctor who did it said that the ligature mark on the neck and the burst blood vessels on the face
1: were difficult to square with a typical hanging. This wasn't a typical hanging. Um, that's the answer. In a typical hanging, people tie a rope or cord or on something high up above them, and they stand on a high surface like a chair and then jump off or knock the chair over. That's what produces the angled ligature mark on the neck. But this isn't what Hess is said to have done. Nesbitt and Van Acker write,
0: Tony Latissier points out that there was no suspension of the body from a noose with the feet off the floor as is the usual method when people commit suicide by hanging. Hess had removed his outer garments, looped the cord around his neck, and slumped to the floor with his legs splayed out in front of him.
1: That would explain why the ligature mark on the neck was at a different angle than normal. Also, he was probably trying to push himself downward to apply force to his neck, and in his struggles to do that, blood vessels in his 93-year-old face may have burst. Uh, the The efforts to revive him also could have put strain on him and that could have caused the blood vessels to burst. So this was not a typical suicide by hanging and so we would expect some differences given that he was using a window latch and that he was not hanging with his body straight downward but slumping towards the floor with his feet splayed out in front of him.
0: How about his ability to tie the cord around his neck and the window latch? Wolf thought he didn't have the strength in his hands to do this and cited the fact
1: he needed help tying his shoelaces. Hess's condition may have been more robust than this makes it sound like. Nesbit and Van Acker write With regard to Hess's medical condition, Malawi supervised him on an
0: exercise bicycle every morning. Hess wore a truss and probably found bending to tie
1: up his shoelaces difficult, but he could certainly write legibly and thus tie a knot. So Hess was fit enough to ride an exercise bicycle every morning. Uh, The reason he needed help tying his shoelaces was that he also wore a truss, making it difficult for him to bend to reach them. And he could write legibly, meaning his fingers were strong enough and nimble enough to manipulate a pen. That suggests he could summon the strength and dexterity needed to unplug a lamp cord, wrap it around his neck, and tie it to a window latch. It may not have been easy for him to do those things, but it doesn't have to be easy, just possible for a determined man like him to accomplish.
0: What about the testimony of Malawi, the medical orderly, and what he saw at the scene? He said the furnishings of the summer house had been disturbed and there were two calm men in American uniforms, as well
1: as the one guard who was shaken up. I think Malawi is truthfully reporting what he saw, but that doesn't mean he was interpreting it correctly. Once again, Nesbed and Van Acker respond, There were four reading lamps in the
0: porta cabin and thus more than one cord. The two men in American uniform were medics who had been called to assist in the resuscitation, and in fact continued to do so with Malawi himself. The furniture had been pushed aside in their previous attempts.
1: And despite the fact that the location where all this happened is described as a summer house, it was indeed very small. It was a movable structure known as a porta cabin. And if it had five men in it Hass, uh, Malawi, the guard, and the two other men you definitely need to shove furniture aside to attend to Hass as he's lying on the floor. The disordered furniture thus isn't a good sign of a struggle because it's equally explained by urgent efforts to save his life. The um, fact that two men were calm as they in Malawi tried to revive Hess also isn't suspicious. Medics are trained to be calm in urgent life-saving situations. It's what you want them to be. Whereas a guard who stumbled into this situation may be totally rattled from having to urgently summon medical help for uh, for Hess possibly you know he ran uh, back to get the help and then ran back to the porta cabin making himself unsettled and out of wind and getting his adrenaline up and notice the identities of the two men apparently were known. I haven't been able to determine what their names were in the sources that I've looked at but it appears that they were known American, military medics who were assigned to Spandau. And if they weren't familiar to Malawi, who was a civilian and may not have mixed much with the military medical staff because they were rotated in and out every month, then that wouldn't be too surprising. What
0: about what the Israeli intelligence agent told Hess happened to his father? It's noteworthy that he described a similar scene to what Malawi said and did so the day after Hess's
1: death before a lot was publicly known. It is significant, and the fact that he described the scene so early is a sign that he may well have been connected to an intelligence agency, as he claimed. Apparently, he spoke with Wolf uh, by phone the day after the death, and ordinarily, if someone calls me on the phone and tells me they represent the Mossad or any intelligence agency, I'd be suspicious. (laughs) Anybody can claim to be a spy with secret knowledge, and I'd want some evidence that this is true. The fact Malawi uh, later confirmed what this source said about the people in the summer house was significant, because at the time the source allegedly revealed the information to Hess, it wasn't publicly known. That would have, but it would have been known to the four powers. And that suggests that the source was in contact with people inside the four powers, military or intelligence services. But that doesn't mean he's telling the truth about what happened. Intelligence services play games all the time. Like all of U.S. Air Force counterintelligence agent Richard Doty's lies to Paul Benowitz and the UFO community, which we talked about in episode 143 and episode 144. In fact, the term disinformation was coined by Soviet intelligence. So we have to take
0: seriously the possibility that this was a disinformation operation.
1: Yeah, Uh, let's suppose for the moment that, uh, and you always have to take that into consideration when you're dealing with an intelligence agency. So let's suppose for the moment that the person was part of the Israeli intelligence service, the Mossad. What motive? would he have to call Wolf Hess out of the blue and tell him his father was murdered? Was it just out of the goodness of his heart? If, as he said, the Israelis had advanced knowledge of the plot, he just implicated his own intelligence service and or government leaders in a criminal conspiracy. Um, even though Wolf Hess didn't reveal the agent's name, the fact uh, he also was willing to sign an affidavit in front of a lawyer in South Africa means that there was a record at least there of who he was, and there can't be that many Mossad agents in South Africa, so the Mossad, especially not ones who had knowledge of this situation, so the Mossad likely would have been able to identify him with phone records and things like that if his bosses didn't approve of him leaking this information to Hess, he was taking a big risk of jail time and possibly treason charges, especially since Israel is an ally of the Western powers and accusing the British of murder with approval by the Americans, who are their biggest ally, could harm Israeli national interests. What if his bosses approved of the leak? In that case, Why would they do it? Why would the Israeli higher-ups be willing to accuse the British and the Americans, their biggest ally, of murdering Hess, considering the fact that Hess was an unrepentant Nazi and an anti-Semite? Israelis and anti-Semitic Nazis don't really play well together because, you know, Holocaust. So it doesn't seem probable That the Israelis or their agents would want to tell Wolf Hess about the murder of his anti Semitic, unrepentant Nazi father. Certainly not just out of the goodness of their hearts. If it was the Israelis, this would be a very strange revelation, and that suggests that something else may have been going on. You said if it was the Israelis, can you think of anyone else who might be responsible? The Soviets, or, or at least the Soviet intelligence services like the KGB. Since Israel was part of the Western Alliance, the KGB could easily want to drive a wedge between Israel, Britain, and America by having um, an apparent Israeli intelligence agent accusing the British and the Americans of a politically motivated murder and then framing the Israelis for the leak. I can't prove That's what was going on, but I do think that whoever Hess's source was, it's very suspicious that an Israeli agent would call him up and tell him his anti-Semitic, unrepentant Nazi father had been murdered. The known facts are also consistent with someone else, like from the four powers who had inside knowledge of Hess's death investigation, like the Soviets, faking this claim. So, I don't trust the account, and I don't think we can use it as actual evidence of murder. But why would Hess want to kill himself if he was just about to be released? The question of the motive for Hess's death, whether it was Hess's own motive or someone else's, is the most ambiguous issue on the table, which is why I wanted to save it for last. On the one hand, it's hard for me to see why the British would want to kill Hess. After all, the British position was that they supported Hess's release. Of course, uh, what politicians publicly say isn't always true, and even if politicians wanted him released, that doesn't mean everybody did. There could be a faction in British intelligence that didn't want him released and that was willing to kill him. However... What would be the motive after all this time? If, I mean, even if Hess could have embarrassed members of the World War II generation, like Winston Churchill, what embarrassment would he have caused them 42 years after the war and that would be worth killing him at this late date? Uh, none of the officials he might have had dirt on were still in office and most of them were dead. Maybe this is really the only thing I can think of, maybe he had something on the royal family. But the royal family is no stranger to weathering scandals, as recent history shows. And they could certainly weather one based on what could be dismissed as the ravings of a 93-year-old unrepentant Nazi with mental health issues. So, I don't see it. What
0: about the other members of the four powers, the Americans, French and Soviets?
1: I don't see a motive on behalf of the Americans or the French uh, since they weren't involved with what happened to Hess's flight back in 1941. Uh, I could see more of a motive for the Soviets. you know, while Gorbachev was initiating reforms and apparently wanted to see Hess released, his actions were not popular with a lot of the old guard in the Soviet Union. In fact, just four years later in August of 1991, um, they would stage a coup against Gorbachev and put him under house arrest for a time. So I can imagine rogue elements of the KGB or other services having a motive for wanting to kill, uh, for wanting Hess dead and being willing to kill him. I don't know what that motive would have been. Um, You know, uh, like, uh it maybe it was the offer from Stalin, but Stalin you know Stalin was out of favor at the time, so I don't know what the motive would have been, and the evidence doesn't support this hypothesis since the prison was under American control at the time, and the two people on the site, the guard and the two medics, were apparently Americans rather than Soviets
0: then what would have Hess's motive been for killing himself?
1: I don't know, uh, I agree. That it's suspicious that Hess would want to kill himself when it looked like he was finally going to be set free, something that he'd wanted for over 40 years. And he had, you know, which he'd personally written the heads of the four powers about. Uh, You'd think he only had to wait a few more months and then he'd get to see his family and give interviews and do all kinds of things. On the other hand, he did have a history of suicide attempts as. Wolf has admitted his father tried to kill himself shortly after he was taken into custody by the British back in 1942. Once he realized that his peace plan had failed, he tried to kill himself. He tried to kill himself again in 1945, and he also tried to kill himself in Spandau in 1977. So he was suicide prone. And maybe he just had a bad day in 1987. Maybe he thought his release was taking too long or. Maybe he despaired of ever getting out before his death, given that he was now 93 and in poor health. All the authorities, you know, had to do was delay a bit longer and he would die of old age in prison. So maybe he got depressed and had a bad day, suffering aches and pains from old age, and on that day he saw an opportunity to end his suffering when he was left alone in the summer house and decided to take the opportunity and end his life. I don't claim to know that that is what happened, but I do think it's a possibility.
0: Anytime we discuss suicide on this show, we always make it a point that suicide's not the answer.
1: Yeah, suicide is never the answer, and there is help. Uh, when people are tempted to kill themselves, it's because they're suffering. But there are ways to relieve suffering, and there are people who care and who will help. From anywhere in the world... You can Google suicide prevention and find resources in your area. Here in the United States, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline free of charge by calling 988. Uh, This is a new number, and it's just three digits. It's uh, like when you call 911 for emergency services in the U.S. You can now call 988 from anywhere in the U.S. for the Suicide and Crisis Prevention Hotline. And there's help everywhere else in the world, too. So people don't have to suffer and people do care. Just reach out.
0: Jimmy, what can we say about Rudolf Hess from the faith perspective?
1: Not a lot. All the uh, answers are pretty obvious. Attempts to make peace, good. Nazism, bad. Totalitarianism, (laughs) bad. Racism, bad. Anti-Semitism, bad. Genocide, very bad. Enough said. Very good. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on these conspiracy theories concerning Rudolf Hess? As we saw last episode, uh, Rudolf Hess acted on his own initiative when he made his flight back in 1941. The evidence suggests that Hitler did not send him to Scotland and that the British did not know he was coming. And the evidence points towards him proposing a peace plan that would essentially maintain the status quo. Germany would basically get to do what it wanted in Europe and Britain would basically get to keep its naval empire. But the British rejected the plan and he ended up in Spandau prison after the war. It really was him and not an imposter who was there. I am less sure of how he died. I don't think that the case for him being murdered is strong, uh, but the issue of the motive for his death, whether His own motive for killing himself or someone else's motive for killing him is not fully clear. As a result, I think that the balance of evidence probably points to suicide, but I cannot rule out the murder theory altogether.
0: Will we ever get more clarity on the issue?
1: Perhaps. uh, The British kept a lot of files on Hess classified for a long time after the war. Uh, You know, they had more files than anyone else since he came to their territory. Uh, Advocates of the murder view held out hope that their declassification would support the case um, for murder, but as the documents have been released, they haven't supported it. Um, I have been unable to establish whether there are still classified files on Hess. I've done some checking, but haven't been able to get definitive confirmation. And so there might be uh, still classified files. And if so, we might one day get information that would help us settle the remaining mysteries one way or the other. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to listeners and viewers? We'll have Richard J. Evans's book, uh, The Hitler Conspiracy, so we'll have a link to that. Also, Lord uh, James Douglas Hamilton's book, The Truth About Rudolf Hess, Nesbitt and Van Acker's book, The Flight of Rudolf Hess, Myths and Realities, Norman Goda's book, Tales from Spandau, Nazi Criminals and the Cold War. Uh, Eric Kurlander's book, Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. Albert Speer's book, Inside the Third Reich. Wolf Hess's essay, The Life and Death of My Father, Rudolf Hess. The British Foreign Office statement about Hess that we read from last episode. President Reagan's Mr. Gorbachev Tear Down This Wall speech. Also information about the fall of uh, the Berlin Wall and New Scientist's article on Hess's DNA.
0: Excellent. So that's it from us this time. What are your theories about the Rudolf Hess imposter and murder theories? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com discord or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515.
1: And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they've done on this episode. Uh, if you have need for video and animation services, do check them out. They're available for hire, and you can have a sample of their work by looking at the video version of Mysterious World on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. While you're there, I am trying to grow the channel and get up to 40,000 uh, subscribers. That's my current goal. And a lot of people have said they don't know why more people don't subscribe. They think that the video is, you know, the podcast is of such quality. It ought to be more popular on YouTube. So you can help. Uh, by liking, commenting, subscribing, and especially uh, hitting the bell notification, so that you always get a notification whenever I have a new video, whether it's a a mysterious world video or one of the other videos I do. So, uh, thank you for doing. That. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going down under. Back in episode one forty eight, we told you about the fearsome Australian drop bears and we mentioned an extinct Australian animal that is alternately called the Tasmanian wolf, the Tasmanian tiger, and the thylacine. Reportedly, the last thylacine died in 1936, but there have been persistent reports that thylacines still exist in the wild, which would make them cryptids or hidden animals. There also are new attempts to bring thylacines back from extinction using modern DNA technology. So next week, we're going to be going cryptid hunting in search of thylacines with the help of our Australian friends, Matt Frad and the Catholics of Oz.
0: Always great to have them on the show. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt, mug, and more in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the Mysterious Headlines on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 250. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fear Vento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest network show, The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com Stargate.